work in all sorts of places, but we're just so glad you're here. So we love you. Okay, Mark chapter 15. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. I always encourage you to bring a Bible or scroll to it. Um, It will be on the screen, but it's also nice to be able to get used to the terrain of your own Bible uh, as well as because that's something that we're to take with us and read and study in our everyday life. Mark chapter 15, one through 15. We've been going through the book of Mark. This is sermon number 63 through the book of Mark. And, uh, and part of the reason why we read the scriptures like this is this. We don't want to just pull out a verse and then um, use that verse to communicate what we want to communicate. We want to come under the authority of scripture and show all of us, myself included, how to understand the whole narrative of the Bible. So we're, in, we're like over, well over a year into this. Here's what's fascinating as we're going through the book of Mark. This is the peak Right now is sort of the 63 weeks up to this point, and we are hitting the peak right now. What's interesting about that is we're in the middle of summer. It's 4th of July weekend. So one of the biggest cultural lulls is this 63-week climatic moment in Scripture. And I just think that's how God works. In the moment where we're just sort of relaxed, the Spirit breaks through, surprising things happen. I want to encourage us, though, right now to just wake up to this. We've invested a lot into this text, into this narrative, into this gospel. This, these are some of the moments. So uh, Mark chapter 15, I'm gonna start by asking, um, by naming something very obvious. We live in a culture, in an era, in an era of life of offense, uh, where just people are offended all the time. You all know what I'm talking about? And as I've been studying this, I've realized I didn't think I got offended a lot, but as I'm studying some of what I'm studying today, I'm like, I get offended all the time, usually in little ways. But uh, it's interesting how you read the scriptures, it's a window into your own soul. But it's like we're um, addicted to being uh, offended in some ways. In fact, I'll ask you, what does it take to offend you? Like, where's the line? What does it take to offend you? When somebody cuts you off in the car, do you get offended? or drives too slow in front of you. My daughter and I were driving and somebody was driving too slow in front of us, and, or I was driving too slow in front of them, and they cut around me, they slammed on the brakes, almost rear-ended them. I, th- I think this person wanted to kill me. Um, and I'm like, I'm human, I-, I love you. And, and secretly I know waving and smiling is making them more mad, and there's me <laughs> playing the game. Uh, and we can also be offended by uh, bigger things, um, like personal betrayal and things that happen to us that create trauma inside of us. But we live in a culture of, of, of offense. Um, we need to stand against something. We, we like the empowerment of being against something. It's, there's actually a multi-billion dollar industry built around us staying offended, actually. There's a big chess match that we're playing with culture as a whole, and, and we're, we're offended at what is said, we're offended at what isn't said. Um, you know, we, the LGBTQIA community is offended, um, P, uh, old people are offended, young people are offended, Christians are offended, uh, Vikings fans are offended. Um, did I miss anybody? I don't know, like, like you're, like, socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, there's all, there's all sorts of opportunity to be offended and to stay offended. And it is a war we fight on a soul level. And today is 
For me, it's more than just playing church or preaching some sweet little sermon and some truth. This, I believe, is spiritual warfare for our souls to be set free from offense. And I've, ended it, I've entered into it this week, and so I'm gonna welcome you into it with me, and I think we're gonna experience a freeing time together. A recent news uh, article in News Tribune um, uh, written by Bradley Gitz, he, he said, the title of the article is Culture Has Incentivized Being Offended. And he wrote this, because our culture has incentivized being offended, we have created a 24-7 fake outrage machine. We're in an increasing proportion of the population spends an increasing proportion of their time looking for things to be offended by and almost always find it. Why does this matter? Here's why it matters and here's why I'm introing this to this text. Here's why. Because this cultural phenomenon is opposite of the way of Jesus. It's the opposite. And I want to be honest. I want to name this one thing. Uh, and I, I am, I'm, I, I'm a pastor. I'm first a, a man and a follower of Jesus. So I'm, I'm amongst you. But in this role as a pastor, sometimes it's, it's really hard in a culture of, of, of offense. Um, and part of the reason why it's hard is because many followers of Jesus are actually more informed by the culture of offense than they are actually the Bible and Jesus. And so it, it's, it's, it becomes difficult when we have a functional reality in our daily life of actually being shepherded by the culture as a whole and wearing the label Christian, but I follow Jesus. And today is a beautiful invitation to actually follow Jesus. And again, I know I'm speaking really direct to you. I am so speaking direct to me. So if you're a human, raise your hand. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the club of being hopefully led by the Spirit and led by this text. Uh, so Mark chapter 15, one through 15, um, I believe it is one of the most offensive stories in scripture when it comes to Jesus. And I actually believe we can make a case in this passage that Jesus is unoffendable. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. What would it be like on a soul level? Doesn't mean you don't ever get angry. Doesn't mean you don't ever get sad. But on a soul level, what if you were unoffendable? And now you might be a little skeptical as I am a little bit of that statement, but let's jump into the text and let's see where it takes us. Um, so we're gonna start many times when we think about the cross, because we're on the journey to the cross, many times when we think about the suffering on the cross of Jesus, we think about the physical pain, and there was a lot of physical pain from the outside in. But sometimes we fail to see the intensity of the pain that began on the inside. And we can, we can and the physical pain was tremendous and weighty, and sometimes we can like um, minimize the pain on the, the emotional pain on the inside that Jesus went through. But what we're gonna see in this passage as Jesus is journeying towards a cross, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna see that uh, Jesus' journey to the cross started with deep internal pain. In fact, Jesus began to carry the weight of his death long before the cross was put on his back. We're gonna see that here. And it's actually a beautiful story. Um, it's a story that breaks through a lot of illusions in this world that we have to just live bound up, offended, 
um, in a traumatic state our entire life. We do not have to in Jesus' name because we are followers of Jesus empowered by the Spirit of God. And so we're gonna start, I'm, I'm gonna break it up in sections and, and let's just do this before we go into it. Let's just take a moment of silence before we read God's word and thank the Lord for his word. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. You are the living word. And we thank you for the Bible, a truth outside of ourselves. Um, Spirit of God, lead us today as we open your word, your faithful word, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna start at verse one. This is the story of Jesus before uh, Pilate. And here's what it says right away. It says, very early in the morning, uh, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin was a group of a little over 70 Jewish leaders, made up a whole council. Uh, they, They made their plans, and they bound Jesus and led him away to be handed over to Pilate. And Pilate was a Roman governor of the region. We know that Jesus was uh, arrested the night before. And so here's where we begin. Jesus was arrested the night before and tried in front of the Sanhedrin like in the middle of the night. That's a creepy trial, by the way. Um, Right in the middle of the night, but according to their own code, legal decisions made at night were invalid. And so they actually needed to make decisions right away in the morning. So you can picture them like, getting up or even staying up all night plotting against Jesus. And here's what the plot, here's what the plot looked like. Um, so they got up early to derive a plan, rework their charge of blasphemy against Jesus to make it fit the crime for capital punishment under Roman law. So it's like clay. They have this crime that Jesus committed, but they're reworking it so they can manipulate Rome. And, and here's what they did. These Jewish leaders have already decided Jesus is guilty before the trial. And so their goal is to manipulate the Roman powers to kill Jesus unjustly, but make it look just. That's what they want to do to Jesus. In other words, they set up a mock trial, manipulating the details, already deciding Jesus' fate. And here's, um, here's... What I want to imagine, I'm going to use bricks to show this. I want you to imagine the weight, internal weight that is set on Jesus long before the cross is put on his back. And I want you to ask this question. Every time I lay a brick on top of another, in this case, how to be at the center of such a manipulative evil, how offended would you be? And this weight is sitting on Jesus, of these religious leaders, putting Jesus in this unjust place, but making it look as just as they possibly can. And now it's Pilate's turn to examine Jesus. Pilate, the Roman governor, is trying to play by the rules and, uh, and, and also appease the crowd. And so we're gonna look at verses two through five, and here's what it says. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they've accused you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was 
amazed. And Pilate was amazed. And so Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And this term here, king of the Jews, was a highly political term in this case. In fact, the reason why Jesus was accused of this type of blasphemy, what the Jewish leaders are trying to do is they're trying to entangle Jesus into politics. They're trying to entangle his identity um, into uh, a political associations and manipulate Rome to kill him. And so Jesus' answer to that question, if you notice, when he goes, um, he goes, you say, um, his answer neither denies his kingship nor entangles his identity with earthly powers. The kingdom of God isn't a kingdom that plays the earthly game of politics and power well. The kingdom of God is a totally different game. We like Scrabble. I like Scrabble. Anybody else? I like to use the small words on the right spots to demolish the fancy words in the wrong spots. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And it's like they're playing Scrabble, but Jesus is playing shoots and ladders. It's a totally different completely different game. He's not trying to play that game well, and it completely shocks Pilate. Pilate has a trained eye for knowing what a revolutionary looks like, and Jesus doesn't look like any of them. And so it says he was amazed, astonished, in the Greek, just taken back, like, who is this person who's living in such an otherworldly way, not playing by the same rules of this world? And it's, it's fascinating. And so in this, Pilate examined Jesus more and then it said Jesus was silent. And Pilate was amazed. And, and that word amazed does mean to admire or to wonder. So Jesus is captured, beaten up a little bit. And this Roman governor who is set from a worldly standard above Jesus is amazed by the countenance, the presence of Jesus, by the silence of Jesus. Here's what one theologian said. Said it was an awful silence which would not give that which was holy to the dogs. The very silence of Jesus amid many, amid many changes, charges, by none of which his accusers would stand or fall, excited the wonder of his judge. And so... Pilate had this wonder that was growing inside of him. It's like Pilate can begin to see the divinity of Jesus. Like maybe this is more than just a man. And in fact, we actually know something like that is going on. Here's what we know. Pilate knew that the Jewish leaders were lying. He knew they were lying. So Pilate was playing the game of power um, in Rome and wanting to keep the peace and wanting to appease the people. He's playing the game as best he can, but he knew they were lying. Uh, but he was being leveraged and he knew it. And Pilate, even his wife in Matthew chapter 27, had a mysterious dream about Jesus and warned him. His wife warned him. And when your wife warns you, you listen. <laughs> and that's what, and you can just imagine his imagination. What my wife is having, dream, like this person is not playing by the same rules of this world. And so Pilate, um, we know he began to sense something divine inside of Jesus. Um, and I, and I, I want to call this out because even Pilate's desire to save Jesus' life, I believe, was not necessarily rooted purely in justice, but also an instinct of self-preservation. He wanted to be on the right side of this story. 
You have this uprising that could set him at odds with Rome and with the Jewish people, but you have this mysterious Jesus, and you just wonder is one of those things that kills cynicism, and, and wonder sometimes begins with this word, well, what if? What if it's true? What if there's this kingly thing, something else going on here? And so Pilate was asking questions. And so I wanna call this out. How offensive was this? Think about it for a minute. An earthly governor standing over Jesus and judging the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How dare you, creator God in the flesh, like the breath is in your lungs because of God. How dare you stand over the king of kings and the Lord of lords and examine these questions in and of themselves, even if they come across nice, are offensive. Okay, here's what, here's what came to mind. Here's what came to mind. And, and, and one is how offended would you be? Uh, here's one thing we know. So I live here in Minnesota, love Minnesota, moved here from Chicago. Here's one thing that we have in common. In Chicago and Minnesota, and of course Chicago's a state, um, we are really good at being coaches of our favorite professional team from our living room. Man, I can't believe we played so well. We won. This is good. And then when we lose, when we lose as if we played the game, many of you know that you think you know how they could have You think if you were on the field that you could have made a difference. And in fact, you're put your point, this coach who's been doing it, dedicated their life to this craft and is in a professional arena, you're like, you're stupid. <laughs> you're terrible. And here's what's interesting. Years ago, in Chicago, I was, a, I was doing a funeral of a sweet, a sweet uh, person in our church family, and I was really surprised during this funeral because all of a sudden, it's... All these people walk in and I'm like, these are not normal human beings. And it was a bunch of Bears players. It was the coaching staff. It was the owners of the Bears and McCaskey family. They all came in. And afterwards, I was at lunch. And I'm literally sitting next to Virginia McCaskey, John Fox, coach of the Bears. We're talking and I'm just acting like I know what's going on. (laughs) Here's what I didn't do. It was a crappy season last season. And here's what I think you should have done differently. How offensive would that be? Right? Pretty offensive. There's more I want to say about that story, but it would be a complete rabbit trail. Uh, But I will say this. In this case, you got to picture the gap between the king of kings and the lord of lords and a Roman governor. And Jesus is sitting under his judgment, really? How offensive is that? And so the question, the statement I want to make is Jesus sat under the weight of the crucifixion long before the cross. Got to do this right. Long before the cross, the weight of the cross was on his back. How offended would you be in that situation? How offended would you be in that situation? Towards, Towards Pilate. 
And it's interesting because this seems like it's Jesus' chance to show him who's boss, but here is what Jesus did. He could have used his power to end this injustice, lifted these bricks and crushed his enemies, but instead, in his silence, he carried the weight. He began to carry the weight of their examinations and their sin. Already here, he began to carry the weight. And, and I wanna point out one of the most basic but important theological understandings around uh, Jesus' sacrificial atoning death for us. And, and we begin to see the hints here. When we start seeing the hints of Jesus' identity here of being more than just a man, fully man, but also fully God, and I'm not gonna go into that in detail, but we begin to understand that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus freely gave his life. Jesus had the power to do, to, to overthrow or, or do it, whatever needed to be done in the moment, but Jesus' silence was one of the most powerful moments, I think, in Scripture of, of like this, a different kind of power, a power that is in place not to conquer you and make you follow him, but to save you and invite you and adopt you to be his child different kind of power altogether. And we see it here in the silence of Jesus. And there's a question I want to ask that it gets very specific here, and it's this. Who did Jesus substitute himself for? Who did Jesus give himself? His life wasn't taken. Who did Jesus give himself for? And many names come to mind, and for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you might go, me, like all of us, there's actually something very specific that the story calls out, and the offense continues to grow. And it's in verse six through 15, and here's what, it, here's what it says. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This right here is one of the strangest interruptions in Scripture. We know the characters of the story. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know the characters in the story. You've heard us last week, the week before, we're talking about the story. You know who's involved, the disciples and Jesus and, and Pilate and, and, and Judas and Peter. You see all the, and then out of nowhere, somebody you've never heard of up to this point busts onto the scene and his name is Barabbas. Who is this person, this weird sort of interruption in the middle of this narr narrative? Who is Barabbas? And here's what we know. We know that Barabbas was a leader, some sort of leader in a, a rebellion. We know that Barabbas was a murderer, probably um, had some sociopathic tendencies. We can kind of see hints of that in the text. He was a thug. He was somebody that uh, 
was on death row. He was dying. He was dying for a good reason, according to the laws of that day. He was dying. And Pilate says, who do you want to die? The son of the living God, King Jesus, in a way? Or do you want Barabbas, the sociopathic murderer? You can begin to see how offensive this is. And the question alone, just the question alone is offensive. It offends me. I'm offended by that question. Barabbas lists his law. Barabbas doesn't deserve to live. Barabbas deserves, like in this case, Barabbas is, is this, he was, he was tried, he, he was convicted, he is, he's, a, he's a rebel, he's taken human life. Jesus, what has Jesus done? Like he's healed people, he's set people free. He's given his life for the well-being of others. So who do you want to die? And it's interesting because what, what we actually picture here when, when Pilate asks this question is he's probably saying it sarcastically. Meaning, Pilate clearly wanted to see Jesus set free, thinking out of these two men, they're gonna pick Jesus. And what happened next, no doubt, surprised Pilate as it totally backfired on him. And now, even in one of our creeds, we say that Jesus was crucified under who? Pontius Pilate, which is sad commentary. And they yelled, crucify Jesus. What? Out of these two, crucify Jesus? And so in this, if you can imagine, I want you to imagine for a minute, you got the religious leaders and how offensive they were. And then here you have Pilate. Who is he to judge Jesus? And now you have this crowd. Many of them, no doubt, benefited from Jesus' ministry. And they're yelling together, crucify him, because crowds are so easily manipulated. We know that. How offensive, how offensive this is. This crowd, how offended would you be if you were in Jesus' spot and they wanted to trade your life for Barabbas' life? How offended would you be? And the weight, the weight of the cross was, on, was beginning to be put on Jesus long before that wooden cross actually went on his back. And we see that weight continue to grow. But the crowd wasn't the most offensive part of the story. And here's the icing on the offensive cake, if you will. And uh, they just, they didn't just shout crucify him. In fact, if you turn to Luke chapter 23, we actually see that they shouted, give us Barabbas. And I want you to picture Jesus standing there, so in love with the crowd, just loves loves them, came for them, is going to die for them, and out of their mouths. Don't you wonder if Jesus was looking through the crowd and seeing individuals? Seeing individuals who he knows more than they know themselves, and, and when he's seen those individuals, He's seen come out of their mouth the syllables, the, the word Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. They're rejecting Jesus. They're choosing Barabbas. Can you imagine how offensive that would be? How mad, how mad would that make you? This unjust trial. The crowd, Pilate, the Jewish leaders. How offensive would it be and then he's, they say, give us Barabbas. And, and, and I want you to imagine being Jesus when you watch the Roman guards walk up to that platform while you're in shackles, 
Well, Jesus is in shadow. Or maybe put yourself in the crowd, right? Put yourself in the crowd, and you're watching the Roman guards walk up. It's Jesus or Barabbas, and they begin to unlock the shackles on Barabbas, Barabbas, and the chains fall. And Barabbas begins to walk down the stairs like he's a hero. Greeted, no doubt, by other revolutionaries and thugs that he ran with. Imagine being there in that moment watching that happen. And this reality rises, and this is what I want to point to today, is that the first person that Jesus substituted himself for, the first person, in this narrative, it isn't John the Beloved. I mean, you read about John the Beloved, it's like, I'll, give, I'll die for John the Beloved. Or Mary, the mother of Jesus. The first person that Jesus substituted himself for was the thug Barabbas. The first person. And here's what I wanna say on this 4th of July summer it's getting a little hot now outside. It's getting a little hot in here. I wanna, I wanna tell you again, moving into the peak of this thing, wake up. Don't let this moment pass you by. I'm not gonna try to stir you up. I just wanna invite you to attend to this text with me, knowing that the Spirit of God is with us as well in this because this is a, this is a moment in Scripture. This is a moment in Scripture. So the reality rises that he gave his life for Barabbas. And so Barabbas himself was incredibly offensive. And I, I want you to imagine not just what it would be like to be offended at the religious leaders, not what it would be like just to carry the weight of who is Pilate. Who is Pilate judging you if you were Jesus or, or, or not, not just the, the, the betraying crowd who you've given your, who you've given your whole life to love but then this person, Barabbas, and what's interesting about Barabbas, nowhere in scripture do we see Barabbas turning around after he walked off that platform back at Jesus, said, thank you. Thank you for taking my place. And in fact, Barabbas probably had no idea that it was Jesus' love that caused him to go free. Barabbas thinks it's the crowd. Thank you, everybody. I'm all, you chose me. I am awesome. He has no idea. And meanwhile, Jesus is the one who gave his life. Jesus is the one who kept his mouth shut and silently exercised a different kind of power that set Barabbas free. It's Jesus the one in shackles so that Barabbas can go free. It's the gospel wrapped up in this story. Jesus actually did substitute himself for, for Barabbas, for us. And, and here's, I think about this sometimes, not just for me, but the world around us. How often do people walk around our world soaking in the blessings of God and then, and then, and then sending the credit elsewhere? Every breath in our lungs. How many people deny God? <sighs> With their seeing eye and their breath, they use words from the breath in their lungs. The one the one who holds their being together and how loving of God to be able to love a creation that soaks in his blessings while denying him through the mechanisms of that blessing, the very air we breathe. How loving, and we see it at play here. Barabbas has no idea it was Jesus. Jesus 
He didn't give, I, one, I had a question or a, uh, with my daughter. We had a conversation about this actually, wondering whatever happened to Barabbas. The seed of the gospel was planted in him. Did he ever give his life to Jesus? I hope in the kingdom to come, we run into Barabbas. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I like to think about that though. And, um, and, and it's interesting. So what I wanna share here is this. Jesus in his silence stood unoffendable, ready still to, you don't die for somebody when you're holding a fence against them. Um, and, and I wonder if any disciples were there and that words from written in Luke, I can't remember the chapter, echoed in their mind. What good is it to love somebody who loves you? Right, that's easy. And then Jesus actually calls them to an active love of their enemies. And right now, Jesus is living it out. Um, while I was studying this, this text, I, I had this, a couple reoccurring thoughts in my mind as I was getting ticked off at Barabbas. And it, and it was this, the heart of God saying, I love Barabbas, I love him. And then there's this other thought that kept coming to mind. Dave, you are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus freely gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for who? For all of us. And some actually receive that gift. You know, I gave my life to Jesus again. I, I've already given my life to Jesus, but I just think I need to do it again and again. Um, some of you know I took the, most of the month of June off. At the end of it, my wife Stephanie noticed some emotional heaviness in me and was like, you need to go on a retreat with Jesus. And that was on a Monday, and so Tuesday I left <laughs> to a hermitage for a couple days with Jesus. And how, how many of you are just distracted in this season of life? Even in this era, technology, it just, I get so addicted to it. I get so distracted. Yes, people are boldly putting them in their hands. And if somebody's hands aren't up, they should be up, right? Um, so, uh, but I get so distracted. And, and in that time, I, I thought about all the things that Jesus is calling me out of to, to deeper devotion and to less distraction and, and, and all these things that um, I, I had a sense Jesus is calling me out of. But one thing, one thing that as I've thought about that time and space since I left that I keep coming back to, that I think God is highlighting for me, is that the greatest obstacle for me is not becoming less distracted and becoming more devoted. It's remembering for the 50,000th time that in my sin and my shortcomings, I don't offend God. That Jesus, that I'm actually seen, I'm, I'm, I'm seen through the lens of the cross. I'm actually forgiven. And, and that truth for me, that God sacrificed himself for me, that I don't offend is, it's life-changing, and I, I just wanna say that to you as well today. You, you don't offend the heart of God. 
Yeah, sin is offensive, and that's why Jesus paid the price for your sin. So how do we respond today? In, in order to respond today, and I'll invite the worship team to go ahead and come up. Um, in order to respond today, uh, we need to remember the context of the gospel of Mark. And stick with me just for a minute here. Because we've been in this for a long time, sometimes we forget the context. This was a time of chaos and turbulence, and there, was no, there were no gospels. They needed a clear vision of who Jesus is in the midst of chaos. It was a scary time to be alive, especially for a Christian. So I'm gonna read you a little bit of history from that time. Um, and here's what it says. And so, and this is, um, this is history of, of the people who received the Gospel of Mark for the first time in ancient Rome. And so, to get rid of this rumor, Nero, Emperor Nero, set up falsely accused as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. These were the people that this book was written to. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed Jesus as Lord. And then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when the daylight failed. We're sitting here in this comfy room in these chairs, but I, I want us to wake up to this reality. This was written to a group of people in a chaotic time in history who had no written down vision of who Jesus was. This is the earliest gospel written around 60 AD. Why is this important? Because this book was not written for cleaned up, refined followers of Jesus. This book was written for people who are suffering and who had all the reason in the world to be bitter. These are people who are gonna stand on trial just like Jesus stood on trial. Some of them burned, some of them crucified. They're gonna have bricks like these put on them. And the question is, will they die on the inside? Will they shrivel away as offended human beings who let bitterness like a cancer eat their soul away? Who let trauma be the last word of their life? Or... Will they like scripture teaches? Though on the outside, they're wasting away. On the inside, they'll be renewed day by day. You might die, but you don't have to die. And so, will they let offense and bitterness eat them up like a cancer? They're faced with the same question we are, and I wanna present to you today. Um, For you, Where's the line? What does it take for you to take deep personal offense? Would it be down here, up here somewhere? Would it be driving home and seeing a bumper sticker on the other side of the cultural war? (laughs) Can't stand them, you don't even know them. Their hurts, their pains, what they've been through. Like, what does it take to offend us as human beings in this culture of offense? And I just believe Jesus wants chains to fall and for us to be set free today, not tomorrow, today, so that we can go into this world with an otherworldly love. And here's what it takes, two things. One, receiving the unoffendable love of Jesus and then giving it out. We're gonna start with receiving. 
So I wanna invite those of you who are serving communion today, stewards, we call them, you can find your places. And, and uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we all stand together today and move around a little bit? I'm starting to sweat, getting hot outside. Air conditioner, keep up in Jesus' name. Um, today, we receive the love of Jesus. We, the reason why we receive communion is because Jesus set it in place to remember. Here's why, because we so easily forget. The gospel of Jesus isn't something that just set us free once and then we're done. It did just set us free once, but we just need to be reminded of it all the time. So today, and we're gonna have a moment in a little bit where we, where we look inward um, at the offense that we're carrying, but right now, let's receive the love of Jesus. I wanna invite you, as a follower of Jesus, to move around this room, to receive this little cracker that to dip it in the juice, to receive it as the body and blood of Jesus which was shed for you. Jesus atoned for your sin. And as you do that, may you remember that Jesus doesn't love a future version of you, but loves you the way you, who you are right now and loves you too much to leave you there. So there's a journey of becoming. But I'm so thankful for the patient love of God. So we're gonna open up this place to receive. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and, oh, Jesus... Will you meet us in this space? Holy Spirit, will you remind us again of how insanely loved we actually are? May this space be filled with a sacred remembrance, but may that remembrance be empowered by your spirit that is here with us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let those serve you around the room Uh, Feel free to move around and receive, to worship, to reflect. And I'll be back up for another little prayer time in a little bit.